Hello, and welcome to the Panzer Podcast. My name is John Burgess, and I will be your host today as we deep dive into all things tanks. On today's episode, we will once again further our extensive, exhaustive, elaborative, exploratory, and emblematic research into the U.S. Army's effort in creating what will become the M4 Sherman tank. You know, the main subject of this entire series, and it's been, what, three episodes now? Or, well, we're on the third episode. And we still really haven't got to the Sherman tank. Well, never fear. We're still a few episodes away from that point in our story and timeline. For the meantime... Let's dig into the next iteration of the 1919 Ordnance Program's creation. For those of you keeping track at home, we've discussed the M1921, the M1922, Christie's M1919 and M1921, followed along by the T1, the T1E1, and finally the T2 medium tanks along with some honorable mentions of various light tanks and a couple of heavies, looking at you, Mark 8 Liberty. Though, not exactly the most exciting of the prototypes, considering not much was made of them, besides maybe, you know, a prototype, and, you know, testing some new things, a few lessons here, a few lessons there. But we are now going to see some of the M4 medium tank that were supposed to be seen, at least in the prototype phase. Mm, maybe. In case you found yourself wondering, like I seem to do from time to time, who am I kidding? You guys have been listening to several hours of my rambling, but in case you were curious whatever happened to our odd fellow, Mr. Christie, well, let's circle back and see what he's been up to. When we last touched base with Christie, all the way back in 1924, after he, the outright rejection of the M1921, you know, that casemate garbage tank, well, not that it was all bad. It just certainly wasn't what the U.S. Ordnance Department had in mind when they were looking for a new tank to fill the role of their new medium tank. This didn't mean it was all bad news for Mr. Christie, who in the meantime had, quote, after the rejection of his M1921 and some later amphibious vehicles, Christie's efforts in tank design turned to the development of a new lightweight high-speed chassis. His front-drive motor company was reorganized as the U.S. Wheel Track Layer Corporation. End quote. Thank you, Mr. Honeycutt, from his book Sherman, A History of the American Medium Tank. I know I keep saying this, but it is an absolute fantastic read, and I'm probably not wrong here, but this is the U.S. medium tank Bible that I'm preaching from. Anyway, let me get off my pulpit. Christie wasn't deterred from his previous failures, and after all, you know, we've rewound the tape again back to the 1920s. Hopefully, the time warping we continue to do in this series so far isn't all that confusing and hopefully, you know, you don't get motion sickness. I am trying my best to lay out this whole tank program chronologically, without, mm, without interrupting the narrative too often. So to keep it straight, I'm keeping them in order from about when the project begins, not as they advance, 
I'm not going to stop in the middle of a timeline to go, oh, by the way, it's 1928, so here's a new tank that started. No, 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 no. So bear with me. We're still in the branches of the tech tree. We haven't gotten into the more straight, incestuous line of development yet. The line of tanks we're about to delve into might just be Christie's magnum opus. And by that, I mean... The, this tank is it's going to be his most recognizable and longest-lasting contribution to the world of tanks. Ha. This new vehicle, which would be dubbed the M1928, debuted on the tail end of October of 1928 at Fort Myer in Virginia. The vehicle itself weighed in at 8.6 tons, or about 17,000 pounds, with a substantial power-to-weight ratio of 39 horsepower per ton. Would you like to hazard a guess as to which engine Christie plopped down inside of this chassis? If your bingo card has the 338-horsepower Liberty engine, you've definitely got a bingo. Remember, the 1919 Ordnance Department decree only required 10 horsepower per ton. And this monstrosity was boasting nearly fourfold that. That isn't even the part that deserves the accolades. I mean, look, it's fantastic to be sure. But the feature that is revered and will be seen basically throughout the 1930s, throughout the 1940s, and for a lot of countries, through the 1950s and beyond, at least in spirit anyway, What I'm talking about is the suspension system on this bad boy. Why is that? Just go look at the T-34. That suspension is essentially this Christie suspension. Now, okay, there were some changes made. You know, the Soviets didn't just hire Christie and he just worked on their tanks. But the essence, the, 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 you know, the proto T-34 suspension is the Christie suspension consisting of four large, independently sprung road wheels on each side. The wheels were mounted at the end of a pivoted arm supported by large, adjustable coil springs. The spring on each wheel allowed movement of up to 11 inches, or 28 centimeters, beyond normal compression. That is per wheel, which is pretty damned impressive. Speaking of the wheels... They were dual road wheels. They were, they were set up kind of, you know, one right up next to each other. They were made of solid rubber tires on solid steel wheels, which greatly reduced the noise and dampened the vibration within the vehicle. Being a Christie vehicle, we know this hot rod was both wheeled and tracked, a convertible of sorts which allowed it to, you know, it was able to achieve a maximum speed of 70 miles per hour, 112 kilometers an hour, on wheels, and 42 and a half miles per hour, or 68 kilometers per hour, on tracks. Which, let's just put it into perspective, the M1A2 Abrams travels at about 42 miles per hour, albeit, you know, on a governor, because that thing has like a turbine engine. Well, we'll get to that eventually. But still, that's a modern-day U.S. main battle tank. The M1928 is a prototype from, you know, 1928. That's pretty goddamn impressive, if you ask me. And speaking to the convertible nature of the vehicle, 
a trained crew could affix or remove the tracks in about half an hour or 30 minutes for the rest of you. Again, not necessarily an easy feat and by no means something that most tankers wanted to do, but it was feasible and, you know, 30 minutes, that's kind of practical, okay, if we're all things considered. In case any of you inquiring minds had queried just how a convertible tank operated, to, I don't know, I guess lay out the basics of how a tank moves, armored vehicles power the tracks via the drive sprocket, or you could say powered sprocket, meaning the powertrain delivers the power via the sprocket wheel, which will either allow the vehicle to move forward or in reverse. Armored vehicles can you know, either be front or rear driven, meaning the powered sprocket is either in the front or the rear of the vehicle. This powered sprocket does not touch the ground. It does not move the vehicle like, you know, like your car does where the tires actually generate the movement. No, the sprocket wheel moves the tracks. The tracks of an armored vehicle, for all intents and purposes, are essentially a chain. Think along the lines of a bicycle, you pedal, which rotates the sprocket and pulls the chain, which in turn rotates your tires. That chain, on a tank anyway, is obviously what's touching the ground, which provides the needed ground pressure, which evenly distributes the weight of the vehicle, allowing it to better traverse various types of terrain and obstacles. Hence, why one would want to have a higher power-to-weight ratio which in turn lends itself to an improved ground pressure. Things like the width of the track, weight of the vehicle, power of the engine, etc. All of these things help to improve or detract from this attribute. All right, these are all things we should kind of be somewhat acquainted with. We delved into these factors on the previous series with the Panther, but it was a while ago, and who doesn't like a little bit of a refresher? Delicious. But John, you're saying to yourself, this explains nothing of how the convertible tank works. If the drive sprocket doesn't touch the ground and only serves to power the tracks, which in turn drives the tracks and moves the tank, how on earth does a tank without tracks move along its wheels? Christy, being the master tinkerer that he was, had already come up with the solution for this, and it wasn't overly complicated. After all, he wasn't a German engineer. Cheap shot, I know, but tell me again how that final drive worked out for you, Panther. Without talking out of my ass too much, Christy simply powered the rear road wheels via a large chain drive installed once the tracks were removed. That was it. Simple, yet effective. The tracks themselves for the M1928 prototype vehicle were 10-inch, 25-centimeters, wide, stamped steel, which were driven by the sprocket via a large tongue on the inside of the tracks. Passing between the two road wheels, keeping the track aligned, the idler wheel, which is the unpowered sprocket, which was held on a sprung arm that could affect the tension of the tracks, which is what all idler wheels do. They are almost all of them able to increase or decrease the tension of the tracks. Over time, the track tension would need to be increased or decreased depending on the terrain and operability of the vehicle. Over-tightening the tension 
could lead to power loss, excessive wear on the suspension system, such as the rollers or idlers, and ultimately could rip apart the tracks if the tension goes beyond the limits of the pins or the tracks themselves. Not enough tension, and you could easily suffer slipping a track, or as it is also known, you can detrack the vehicle. Having recently spoken to a friend of mine who was a tanker with the U.S. Army, when I asked him about throwing a track, another fun euphemism, he responded that it was, quote, a pain in the dick, end quote. Frequent maintenance and observation of such things like track tension are an ever-present and constant concern for the safe operation of armored vehicles. As an almost callback to his previous life, Christie decided that he needed to prove to the Ordnance Department that convertible tanks were still a viable option, and, in his mind, the superior option for armored fighting vehicles. And I'll be damned if this man didn't go and do a barnstorming-esque show and drove this M1928 prototype on a run from Fort Meade to Gettysburg and back again. Ah, the good old days. Now, it was on this very run that the M1928 broke the land speed record. Okay, maybe not actually the land speed record, but this is the run where he spun his prototype up to 70 miles an hour on wheels and 42 miles per hour on tracks. Though the speeds were optimistically high, the Army and the Ordnance Department had some misgivings about the endeavor. If we roll the tape back just a little bit, we'll remember that this quote-unquote medium tank weighed in at 8.6 tons. That's barely half of the tiny medium 15-ton T2 tank. So what gives? Did I bury the lead again? Ah, sort of. I just hadn't got around to describing the visual aspects of this vehicle. The primary reason that this medium tank was in fact such a light tank was because the damn thing was headless, made of very thin steel, and was all but a metal trapezoid on tracks without a turret. The vehicle shape actually reminds me of, I don't know, a proto T-34 tank. You know, the suspension system will be quite familiar to anyone who has seen a T-34, like I've mentioned before, and that goes for both the 76 and 85 models, which share a chassis. Again, this is why this vehicle is revered as an almost mythological beginning for the Soviet BT and T-34 tank development, something we will have to get into much later, and unfortunately, after this series is finished. Uncle Joe's tanks will have to be set aside, but I'll be posting this half tank onto the Instagram so you can see exactly what I'm going on about. Now, back to our thing. Christie v. U.S. Ordnance Department. Insert law and order noise here. The government wasn't keen on a half tank. They needed the full Monty. And by that, I mean they needed some girth. They needed a cannon, a turret, and some realistic prototype that might actually, you know, they could better sink their teeth into, or, in our case, spend some money on. Quote, After some protracted negotiations... Christie received a contract for one vehicle now referred to as the M1931, end quote. Somehow, Christie always seems to remind me of that smart-ass kid in your class. You know, the one who was 
maybe kind of brilliant, but also didn't give a shit about things like deadlines and the government's policies. Again, these opinions are my own. And it's hard to really get into the mindset of Christie, um, as he didn't really leave me any memoirs or personal diaries to scour. But judging by his actions, the man cut his own path. Ordnance Department be damned. And by damned, I mean Christie delivered his now government-approved and contracted M1931 to Aberdeen on January 19th, 1931, four months late. And the testing didn't really go the way either party wanted it to. It was very quickly, as in March of 1931, noted that the vehicle was needed to be recalled so Christie could make several improvements and modifications. Once these had been completed, the army actually liked what they saw. Further negotiations ensued, and finally, by June of 1931, the Ordnance Department decided that they would procure seven M1931s for further testing and application purposes. The M31 was officially redesignated the Convertible Tank Medium T3 on June 12th of 1931. The first of these seven T3 mediums would be delivered by October 9th of 1931, while the seventh and last vehicle would be accepted in March of 1932. After some cursory testing was done at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds, the vehicles were sent to the prospective Army units. Three would be sent to Fort Benning, Georgia, where they would be assigned to our familiar Company F of the 67th Infantry Regiment Medium Tanks. And I'm not just saying medium tanks like a drone, that is literally the regimental designation. Since the Armored Corps did not officially exist yet, and like I said, you might recognize Company F, they were the same fellows who had received the T1E1, the one that they nicknamed Fu Manchu, from the previous episode. Same folks. Now, we were told seven T3s were delivered to Aberdeen. If three have been sent to the infantry, what are they doing with the remaining four? Did they get a summer holiday or something? No, no, no. They're not going to be left off the hook that easily. However, due to a law, yes, an actual law, which states that, quote, all tanks must be assigned to the infantry, end quote. So the remaining T3 medium tanks were actually sent to Fort Knox, Kentucky but they would be assigned to the cavalry. Wait a darn dang old minute. Didn't I just state that legally all tanks must be assigned to the infantry? Then why the heck are them cav boys receiving any of these ground-pounding, legally binding, medium tanks? Well, sir, like all good red tape, it takes a programmer-like move to sidestep the bureaucracy. And so, without further ado... I would like to introduce you all to the, drumroll please, Combat Car, comma, T1. Not to be confused with last episode's T1 medium tank. Though, not to confuse us further with the current T3 that we're discussing, the T1 Combat Car was identical to the T3 medium tank, except for its armament. The T3 was rocking and rolling with a 37mm cannon with a 30 cal machine gun and the combination mount T1. To keep it straight, 
the T3 had a T1 mount, whilst on the other hand, the T1 combat car was equipped with a 50 caliber heavy machine gun instead of a 37mm cannon, which was also mounted. No, I'm kidding. It wasn't mounted in a T1. Didn't I say that the naming conventions of the U.S. Army would be a bit confusing? Well, let's not worry too much about the T1 combat car. This isn't the cavalry podcast. But it is worth noting that the T3 served in both infantry and cavalry armored units. Just a little, maybe a little bar trivia fact for you. So both the T1 combat car and the T3 medium tank was rocking a crew of two. Yes, two. Not ideal, but, you know, this was essentially the bare minimum. You had a driver who drove the tank. Then you had a commander slash gunner slash loader slash poor tired soul. To me, it is even more impressive since this two-man crew was the very same trained crew which was able to switch out the tracks for wheels and vice versa in 30 minutes. That's not bad. And a quick side note to the convertible nature of the T3, I mentioned that once the tracks were off, a train would, uh, I'm sorry, a chain would be installed and used to power the rear wheels. During testing at Aberdeen, there was a one-off model of the T3, and it was labeled the T3E1. This one-off T3E1 tested the idea of using, instead of a chain drive, a gear-driven system that would be used. This was, you know, in part, it was a two-fold attempt at improvement. Firstly, not having to remove the tracks and put on the chain meant less time between conversions. And secondly, when the chain drive was not in use, it was strapped to the side of the tank. Meaning, you know, the possibility of it becoming lost, broken, or, you know, otherwise damaged and inoperable could prove to be a bit of an issue during actual combat. This T3E1 prototype aimed to solve that by installing a gear that could simply just, you know, be engaged and disengaged depending on the operation of the vehicle. I will post a photo of the T3 with chains on and off to show you just how they were stowed on the vehicle. Not much else to know or absorb about the T3E1. It actually really wasn't that successful and, you know, all, you know, none of the other T3s were ever exchanged or upgraded to that model. The armor of the vehicle was in fact still fairly thin, ranging from 5 eighths of an inch down to a half an inch or about 16 millimeters down to about 13 millimeters thick. However, the front end of the vehicle was not only sloped at 45 degrees, the nose of the vehicle was all sloped in at a focal point almost spear-like in appearance, or kind of like a cow mover on the front end of a locomotive. It certainly wasn't going to stop AP rounds that we will become more familiar with once World War II kicks off, but this is a start. Even the front end of the vehicle where the idler sprockets are is sloped and rounded. The sides of the vehicle and rear end are both fairly flat, which was common of the era. Christie's T3 and the T1 combat car, for that matter, had a very Soviet look to them. I'll post a photo of a BT-5 Soviet tank 
and, you know, you'll have to tell me if you can spot the differences. The two vehicles could be siblings or at least cousins. The turret on the T3 was a simple rounded cylinder with a cupola, which provided vision slits for the commander slash gunner to see outside of the vehicle. The turret itself was positioned forward rather than in the center of the vehicle. The driver's position was still front and center, and due to the harsh sloping nature of the upper and lower glasses, the position for the driver's head was hexagonal in shape, and it protruded almost like a chimney poking out of the upper glacis, allowed for vision slits in a stepped appearance. These were still direct vision ports. We hadn't done away yet with the portals to the outside. And again, it's not that periscopes didn't exist, it's just that they were expensive, fragile, and during this period of development, not necessary for prototype vehicles. The T3 had a weight of 11 tons, or 22,000 pounds, fully loaded. Uh, it achieved a maximum speed of 46 miles per hour, or 74 kilometers on wheels, and 27 miles per hour, or 43 kilometers on tracks. In practice, via a governor, the tank was actually limited to about 40 miles an hour on wheels and 25 miles per hour on tracks. That's 64 kilometers, or 40 kilometers per hour, for the rest of you. Despite this mobility and excellent speed of the vehicle, the rather lightweight vehicle really was only capable of operating as a light tank, in both firepower and armor, which were both starting to show their weaknesses as we started in on the 1930s. By the end of 1932, the Ordnance Department had produced new specifications that would once again improve the current iteration of the T3. And despite Christie wanting some of that sweet, sweet federal defense funding, he once again got involved with some protracted disputes with the Ordnance Department people and missed out on a contract for five more new tanks. Instead, this contract would be awarded to the American La France and Fomite Corporation of Elmira, New York. Never heard of them? Me neither. At least until I decided to go down the rabbit hole of what this company, until rather recently, was. Um, as of 2014, they are now legally defunct. But without too much detail, since they kind of come in and go right out of our story, I don't want to spill too much ink on them. They were an old, like one of the original old, fire engine companies of the United States. Founded in 1873, they primarily produced fire engines, hook and ladders, ambulances, and, you know, for a time they dabbled in tank production during the 1930s. Ultimately, they were bought out by Daimler, and like I said, in 2014, the last ALF, that is the American, the France, and FOMI Corporation for short, subsidiary finally closed down for good. What really matters for our story here is that with a brand new government contract in hand, thank you, Christy, for your stubbornness, the T3E2 would be designed and manufactured by the American, the France, and Fomite Corporation, or like I said, ALF. This new T3E2 incorporated quite a few new features, 
which were ostensibly learned during the trials of the T3 vehicles. That wedge or spear-like sloped front end of the vehicle was tampered. Now the slope of the upper glacius was more 25 to 30 degrees instead of 45. The very front end was also widened, and not by a little. Uh, instead, the driver would be moved to the left-hand side of the tank, and a new gunner's position was installed along with a whole machine gun, which would sit right next to the driver's position on the driver's right. The nose of the vehicle would be flattened, which reminds me a whole lot of how the Panzer III or Panzer IV front end appeared. You know, it was slightly sloped, but still just rather flat. Um, otherwise, the side of the vehicle, including the suspension, would remain basically the same. The exception would be a new forged track, which was 12 inches wide instead of 10 inches, providing slightly better ground pressure and flotation. I should like to note here, along with the photos I will post, that the road wheels themselves were not evenly spaced. This was done, you know, which you know, it allowed for the springs to operate more freely, as well as evenly distribute the weight of the vehicle. The 338 horsepower Liberty engine was also, wait a minute, actually, the, the Liberty engine was finally being pulled from tank production. And instead, a Curtis D12 engine was dropped into the T3E2, which provided the tank with 435 horsepower at 2300 RPMs, boasting a maximum speed of 58 miles per hour. 93 kilometers on wheels and 35 miles per hour or 56 kilometers per hour on tracks though again it was governed down to a lower more reliable and much safer speed due to the nature of the transmission and final drives which were still having trouble handling this more powerful engine the turret itself was also enlarged and instead of a cylindrical turret was now more of a, an octagon shape, which allowed for another man to sit in the turret, the now loader and gunner. There was also an addition of three, yes, three 30 caliber machine guns. There were two facing outward on the sides, on the left and the right. There was one rear facing, not to mention the front facing 30 caliber, which was in coaxial mount with the 37 millimeter cannon. So, if you're counting at home, the T3E2 had five 30 caliber machine guns in total and one 37mm cannon. A marked improvement from the previous model, albeit a bit unconventional in nature. Though I would add here that Soviet tanks throughout the war also kept a rear facing machine gun, which was used to keep the pesky infantry away. After some thorough testing through to the end of 1936, see, we're getting closer now, the T3E2 was subjected to minor modifications. But after all was said and done, the five surviving examples of the T3E2 were so heavily modified, about 60 little modifications in total, the Ordnance Department decided to redesignate these T3E2s as the convertible medium tank T3E3. The main complaint and overall through line 
was the ineffectiveness of the clutch brake steering system. The T3E3 modifications had helped improve this steering mechanism, but it was essentially the weak link of this vehicle throughout all of its iterations. I want to kind of pause here and maybe point out some of the modifications that the T3 went through during the last two stages of its development, especially on the T3E2. Remember, once Christie was removed from this project, the Ordnance Department really had their way with the vehicle, which in reality meant instead of minuscule, puny modifications here or there, which would ultimately lead to, you know, pushback and apparently even some all-out arguments between Christie and the Ordnance Department, when ALF, that is the American La France boys, once they took over, they were more than happy to accommodate whatever the hell the government threw at them. After all, they were getting paid. Tinker away, federal government. Tinker away. The ideas and mechanisms that Christie had put together were fantastic prototypes. However, he was very much so set in his ways. I wish I knew more about him personally, but he gives off the vibe that he might have, maybe he was actually the smartest man in the room, but he wasn't always the most tactful smartest man in the room. And it strikes me that way because quite a few of his projects piqued the interest of the Ordnance Department, only for that project to die on the vine or have it ripped away from Christie's own hands. That said, the departure from Christie's designs of the T3 begin to actually show us where the United States' head was at with what they were expecting from the next generation of medium tanks. Obviously, we are still, you know, we still have the 1919 Ordnance Program looming over us. But at this point, that's almost two decades old. And a lot has changed in the world of armored fighting vehicles since then. To put things into perspective, by 1936, all of the Panzers that would see combat in the opening days of the Second World War had already been designed. The Panzer I, the Panzer II, the Panzer III, and the Panzer IV had all been drawn up, and for all intents and purposes, were ready to invade. I mean, there were obviously some changes and upgrades that would take place, but for the most part, the German Panzerwaffe was ready for their little foray into kicking off the largest conflict in human history, as of yet, I should add. So, it was about time that the American armaments industry got their shit together and began producing tanks that looked like, well, tanks. At least, you know, how we all know them. So, before I pontificate too much longer about the wanting U.S. Armored Corps, let's just take a closer look at some of the aforementioned upgrades and modifications that the T3E2 and the T3E3 brought to the table. One thing I find keenly interesting is quite obvious from looking at the T3E2 and T3E3, which I'm going to shorten if I say T3E2E3, know that I'm talking about two separate, but obviously quite similar, tanks. The American the France Company was right to want to improve vision. After all, not knowing what is going on around you is quite a disadvantage when those around you may wish to do you and your little tank harm. 
Looking at the T3 E2 E3 vehicle from the front, I can count 11 vision slits, three of which face directly front, and the remaining eight at angles. Because, kind of like the new octagonally shaped turret, the driver and bow gunner's vision ports were shaped in a sort of half hexagon. Essentially, the driver and the bow gunner's heads were sitting in a little cupola-type protrusion. Remember I described the original T3 as having a sort of chimney protrusion? Similar, but now there's two of them. Except that instead of a stepped slit system, again, check the Instagram to see visually what I'm talking about, the vision slits for the driver and bow gunner were now level, and they had an additional slit that also allowed them to see out of the side of the hull. So they had one facing forward, they had a left one, a right one that were facing on angles, and then directly left and directly right was another slit in the hull wall. Okay. The turret, too, was fitted with quite a few vision slits. Now, I know I said that the turret is an octagon, and it is. It has eight sides. It's just more of an oblong shape rather than an equal-sided octagon, meaning the front and rear of the turret are more, you know, kind of broad and flat to allow more room inside the turret, as well as accommodate the 37mm cannon and its recoil mechanism. Oh, and I guess for fitting the now two crewmen and their four machine guns inside of the turret. From the turret face, there are riveted panels which make up slightly angled sides, and further back, an additional two angled plates, and finally, the rear plate of each of the turret. Each plate having its own vision slit, essentially, inside of the turret, you would be able to see in a sort of 360 degrees. I say sort of, because obviously these small vision slits still allowed for quite a few blind spots and difficult angles. But this is a marked improvement from the claustrophobia-inducing vehicles of history past. On top of this turret resided the also octagonally shaped Commander's Cupola. This octagon, however, was of equal size and sat about middle-middle, center-center of the turret's roof. Again, each of the eight sides having its own vision slit. The world-renowned TM Christie suspension was lauded by many and, on this vehicle, was seen as an early version of what would later become recognizable all over the world for many decades to come. I know I mentioned it earlier, but on the T3E2E3, this early Christie suspension was in kind of a funky configuration. Rear-driven, the powered sprocket sat above the ground, obviously, though it would be level with the road wheels on the top. So the tracks of this vehicle, they actually sat flat on top of the large double road wheels. There were no return rollers on Christie's suspension, and instead, much like the later iterations of the system, large road wheels acted as both the return rollers, guides for the tracks, and, well, the wheels. Now, speaking of the wheels... Looking at the T3E2E3 from a profile point of view, you might have noticed that the wheel alignment is 
disconcerting if you're someone like me who really likes symmetry on their tanks. Now, I'm not going to be totally anal about it, because I do enjoy the asymmetric nature of, say, you know, one headlight or how the bow gun looks. Or, but when, when, we're, when I'm talking about suspension systems, please just give me evenly spaced and give me that symmetry. Okay? Thank you. However, as Christy saw it, four, or rather eight road wheels per side, remember they're in pairs on either side, so 16 road wheels in total, was just perfect. The vehicle, though, well, the hull of the vehicle was kind of long, and as such, in order to distribute the weight properly and keep all of the characteristics that allowed the vehicle to do hot tank shit, like moving forward, crossing trench lines, and the convertible nature of the T3E2 and E3, meant that the wheels had to be positioned in the way that they were for this tank. I will post some more photos um, so that you can see exactly what I'm yammering on about. Just to kind of explain it, the two sets of road wheels to the rear, which are very close to one another, with just enough spacing, they look like they're naturally spaced. Like if you had all four spaced this far apart, you would go, okay, that's how it should look. However, the front pair of wheels, which were near the idler towards the front, And then the next set is kind of oddly placed between the front set of wheels and then the two sets of wheels in the rear. In my mind's eye, if these were better spaced, and by that I mean more evenly spaced, you could probably fit a fifth pair of wheels on this baby, but Christy didn't. So I'll I'll stop harping on it. Finally, I do want to talk a little bit about the tracks. The earlier T3 and the T3E1 were sporting the larger steel-stamped tracks, which were 10 inches in both pitch and width. Track pitch, for the layman, which includes myself, is the distance between one track link to the next, meaning the pin and the bushing. It's not, I don't know, it's not entirely important, but it's something that I want you guys to be aware of. So the T3 and the T3E1, the track system on there, were essentially a 10-inch by 10-inch stamped steel piece. It is very primitive looking. In a lot of ways was, you know, there's no rubber. It was simply a metal track with very little extra traction or cleats like we would see in later war tanks. The T3E2E3, on the other hand, was equipped with a more modern-looking track. 12 inches wide, with a pitch of only 5 inches, the tracks themselves were hollow in the middle, meaning they kind of had almost like a cleat-like appearance, which allowed for more traction on rough terrain. However, we're still a ways away from the rubber-treaded tracks of the M4 Sherman. Well, some versions of the Sherman. But again, like I said earlier we're starting to see some more of the modern elements of armor on this late model, like the T3, E2, and E3. Unfortunately, I can't definitively say what happened to these test models. The last photograph I was able to find of a T3, E3 was in 1936 at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds. Whether or not these vehicles ultimately became scrapped or targets, or museum pieces, 
is not known. Um, I suspect they were scrapped at some point or were used as targets after they were no longer viable as training vehicles and then eventually scrapped. Um, I say this only because if there were any good museum pieces, I think it would be much easier to look them up and find a little bit more information about them. That said, it does tickle me a little bit to think that maybe on Fort Meade or Fort Knox, someplace underneath an old oak tree, sits a rusting T3 prototype waiting for some unassuming Joe to discover it and send it back for renovations. After all, a man can dream. Well, folks, I know this episode is titled Sherman 3, and well, we're not there yet to the M4, but we are steadily creeping towards that final destination. I wasn't kidding when I predicted that this series would be a long one, and if these first few episodes haven't made that clear to you, I really don't know what to tell you. That said, we still have some more prototypes to detail, and we'll probably each receive their own episode, as now I'm starting to have much more information available to me, more photographs and facts to give out on these pre-Sherman prototypes. Because some of the very, very early mediums, which we've already discussed, you know, the immediate post-war and the prototypes of the 1920s, they actually lack a lot of information. And they were such short-lived projects that the information out there isn't really complete enough for my own taste. I mean, sure, it, it has required a lot of digging, but I really haven't got a lot out of it in return-wise. You know, I, I'm just making sure that the foundation that we build our Sherman-sized house upon is sturdy enough for the mountain of material we do have on the Sherman. So, you know, hang in there. We're going to be getting into the deep beef here, that thick cut of bacon with some real gristle to sink our collective teeth into. So if you're wondering when I will actually be discussing the Sherman proper, uh, well, shit, I don't know. I honestly couldn't tell you. I, I would say soon, but not too soon. And maybe a little ways away, but not that far away. So hang in there, guys. We're getting there. As always, I can be reached via email at thepanzerpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at thepanzerpod, and on Instagram at thepanzerpodcast. If you like what we're doing here, I would certainly appreciate a positive review on wherever you're listening to this podcast, like Apple or Spotify or Spreaker or whatever, however you're listening, if possible, drop us a review or a little, you know, a couple stars or whatever you think I'm worth. It does help us reach new audience members, and I super appreciate it. Until next time, I'm John Burgess. Thanks for listening.